Is it just me or does it feel kind of cold in this theater? I don't know if it is because I'm standing on Charlie Brown's ice skating rink, but it just feels kind of cold. This morning and next Sunday, we will together finish the book of Esther, and we have arrived at a point in the story which maybe sort of like election year politics is, I think, not really difficult to understand, but is for many people sort of hard to digest. This is a report of holy war in these two chapters of Esther. And the first impression, I think, that anybody reading an account of biblical holy war uh, should get is is to to cause them to see maybe something of an ethical dilemma. You know, we want to ask the question, does God really endorse the destruction of life? And the answer to that is no, he does not. But he is out to destroy evil. And in both the complex and the simple matters that follow along here in this part of the story, what becomes clear, I think, is good news. And so, like last week, I'm going to read the sections of the the Scripture that are printed in your bulletin there on page 8. You have there the first few verses of chapters 8 and 9, and then the rest of it we'll cover as we go along. On that day, King Xerxes gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. Then Esther spoke again to the king. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. When the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king, and she said, If it please the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in all the provinces of the king. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? Then King Xerxes said to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Behold, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he intended to lay hands on the Jews. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king, And seal it with the king's ring, for an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. And skipping down to chapter 9. Now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Xerxes to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews, for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, For the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. 
The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Father, we pray that you would again give to us wisdom that only your spirit can give so that we might understand. We pray that you give us humility of heart to see your holiness and your righteousness and to acknowledge your sovereignty over all things, including our own lives. And we give you praise for these things and ask them in Jesus' name. Amen. About a week ago, one of my favorite movies, favorite stories of all time, was broadcast on TV again a few times on one of the cable channels, The Hobbit uh, movies. At least a couple of them were were broadcast, and, and I couldn't help but hit record on the DVR to record them again, even though I've seen them a number of times, and I expect I'll see them a number of times again. And bear with me, I know some of you are not necessarily Hobbit, Lord of the Rings fans, but I am, and so give me just a moment. Bilbo and his friends, of course, are journeying uh, along on their pathway, his friends, the dwarves, his new friends, the dwarves, and they're on their way on their journey to find the dwarves' mountain, their home mountain, and restore them to it. And on the way, on their journey, they have to pass at one point through the enchanted forest of Mirkwood. And it's a very dangerous proposition, much more so than it even appears, because the right direction is hard to discern in the midst of this deep, dark, wide, high forest. And as they travel along the trail in the forest, the air is stuffy and the light is dim and the enchantments of the forest are heavy and the details become fuzzy, and eventually they figure out that they've lost their way. And so, Bilbo does what any reasonable hobbit would do. He climbs a tree, a tall tree, as they all are in Mirkwood, and he scampers on up to the very top of the tree, and he sticks his head out of the canopy of leaves, out into the fresh air and the clear view that's now around him at that position And now he can see. He can see the big picture. He can see even the mountain out ahead of them, many miles away yet, but he can see where it is and what direction they have to go. And he even calls down to his friends, I can see the mountain because he can see the big picture. You know, without the big picture, the details around us often just become misdirection. The story of Esther is a detail in the journey of redemptive history, in the the somewhat enchanted forest of all that God has laid out over the course of his redemptive plan. And this particular detail of the story of Esther, and in particular these chapters, are pointing us in a direction, but without the big picture in view, with only the dim light of worldly assumptions to guide you, you may quickly become lost and confused. When the dust of these two chapters settle, more than 75,000 people are dead at the hands of the Jews. A holy war of sorts has taken place. And the skeptical mind will read that and begin to, to wonder, is that really God's way? Does God really sanction the destruction of lives in this sort of way? Just what is the big picture after all? 
Where is the fresh air? Where is the clear view that I need to have to see what's going on here? Well, I think we caught a glimpse of, of that big picture last week when we saw the, the picture of Haman and, and his immense worldly pride, the pride of man, unwittingly seeking out a conflict with the immense power of God and the fact that God always prevails because He alone is holy. He alone is sovereign. He alone is ultimately just and determines the standards for all of those things. And He is always good for His promise. God's way is not the destruction of life. It is rather the destruction of evil because He has promised through his Redeemer to heal the world. So Haman, in this story at this point, has now faced justice for his deadly scheme against the Jews. And now, as we've just read, the tables have turned and Mordecai now has some power. The king of Persia is willing to help Mordecai and Esther to save their people from this royally sanctioned decree of death that had ridden out on horseback just two months before. And the king grants them permission to establish a counter-decree. Because the king's word can't be revoked, or so we're told in the course of the the poetry of the story, but a counter-decree can oppose a previous decree. And so here's what happened next in the text that's not on your page. The king's scribes were summoned and an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the satraps and governors and officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, to each people in their own language and to the Jews in their language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes and sealed it with the king's signet ring. Then he sent the letters by mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service. It said that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather and defend their lives, to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods on one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Now that is, of course, the day to which Haman's lots were cast to tell him when his dastardly deed would be carried out. It is yet ten months away, and now there is a counter-decree, a royally sanctioned holy war, which might cause some moral confusion for us, I suppose, unless we see the, the complexity of God's enemy. The tables are turned now, right? So Mordecai has received the position and the authority from the king that Haman previously had had. But the problem is not solved because 10 months later, the the people of Persia would be, by the king's decree, anticipating a purge of their Jewish neighbors. Now, the king's decree was irrevocable, we're told. It's going to happen. It's, it's coming down the pike in some way or another. Some of these Persian residents are going to kill their Jewish neighbors and plunder their possessions. 
And so Esther receives permission from the king, and Mordecai oversees the the crafting of this counter-decree, and it declares that the Jews will be allowed to gather and to defend their lives. Now, that seems totally reasonable to us, doesn't it? Think about this irrevocable decree that's coming down the line, and now the king's not so sure that he should have done it. He wishes that he hadn't, but he can't undo it. And now he's got another decree coming to allow the the victims, so-called, to defend their lives. It seems very reasonable to us. And it was even posted publicly throughout the Persian Empire so that all would know that that's what was coming. And we might, out of our context, assume that if the people of Persia were civil and respectful of one another, even among the surely great variety of racial cultures that existed in their vast empire, if they were somewhat civil and and respectful to one another, that they would see the king's second decree come out and be posted in public places and realize, wait a minute, something's fishy about this. The king made a mistake, and now he's trying to undo his mistake, so let's just be respectful to each other, and, and, and I won't kill my Jewish neighbors on that day. But that's not the world that we live in. It's not the world that they lived in because at that time, evidently, there was some significant anti-Jewish sentiment among the Persian Empire. And this thing was going to play out one way or another. And so it plays out like a holy war. Mordecai seemed to expect that to happen. And so the counter-decree is almost identical to Haman's previous decree. The Jews are to, quote, destroy and kill and annihilate their attackers, women and children included if they're among them, and to plunder their goods. It's the same kind of language that Haman had declared in his first decree. In a sense, it's a declaration of holy war. But the follow-through is a little bit different. In chapter 9, in text you don't have on your page there, if you're looking at your Bible, you can find it. You see that it, it, it followed through just a little bit differently. On that day, we're told that the Jews struck down all their enemies with the sword. We're told that those enemies were, quote, men who hated them. It's not mentioned that there were women and children among those enemies, but we don't know that. They struck down all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, but they laid no hand on the plunder. Three times we're told but they laid no hand on the plunder, even though that's what the decree had allowed them to do. But they laid no hand on the plunder. That tells us, I think, a couple of things. For one, it suggests that the Jews were doing this purely in self-defense. They were not out to conquer an enemy and take away from that enemy, but they were defending themselves. But it tells us something else. There's a contrast to be made here. Because some 500 years before, and we've mentioned this in previous weeks, some 500 years before when King Saul had the opportunity at Samuel's direction to destroy Israel's attacker, the Amalekites, who sought to destroy God's people, when Saul had the opportunity to destroy the attackers, he was told, do not take any plunder. But he did. Saul brought plunder back because he just couldn't resist it. He did exactly what he was told not to do. And so once again, Mordecai's 
Jews are fulfilling what Saul had failed to do. They brought no plunder. And 75,000 enemies at the end of the day are dead. That's disconcerting to us in some ways, maybe in our sensitive hearts. But the reality of it is that it's the ethic of God's judgment intruding into the created order in time and space history. And that has happened at times in history, and it will happen again. But the fact is, some people are offended by the idea of that, and some people are pleased by the idea of that. I I hope that you're neither of those, but perhaps you are one of those. Some people are offended. Some people respond to that in their hearts by asking the question, how can a loving God do this? How can, can a loving God dictate a day on which 75,000 people will be dead because of his people? How can that be? I would, would suggest that if it, if, it, if it offends your sensibilities in some way, then you need to recognize that God's enemy is much more complex than maybe you think. Because without the big picture of redemptive history, we often, often think much too lightly of sin. And we think much too lightly of God's right in our terms, or even better, His obligation in His terms, to destroy evil and to bring justice according to His measure of righteousness. There is yet a day of judgment to come, a day when God will destroy evil and all who have put their trust in that evil. We often make a false assumption and we, we, we want to create this dichotomy between the Old Testament and the New and suggest that, that in, in the Old Testament there was this God of, of anger and judgment. But in the New Testament, there's a God of love and I like that God better because... I want people to love one another, but that's simply not the case at all. It's much more complex than that. Jesus himself believed very thoroughly in judgment to come. He spoke of it frequently, as, as, as often of that as he did of any other topic of God's judgment yet to come. And the reality is that God brings judgment on evil because he so loves all that's good. Both of them go together. And yet there are some people who hear a report of holy war and they are in their heart pleased by the idea of it. And, you know, the, the statement comes up in our minds as it does sometimes as we watch the news or some current event arising in the world around us and we might in our self-righteousness think, well, they deserve whatever they're getting because I know what they did and, and justice is coming and they deserve it. And I would say for us as well, we need to recognize that God's enemy is much more complex than maybe we realize. In the book of Deuteronomy, as Israel was entering into the promised land, Moses was careful to warn them. He said to them these words, Do not say to yourselves, The Lord has given me this land because of my righteousness. No, Moses went on, it is not because of your righteousness or your integrity. For you are a stiff-necked people. 
You got to love that. I, mean, I love that the Lord is so direct with his people. He, he holds no punches from them. And he tells them, look, when you get in here and you realize what a beautiful and wonderful and gracious place this is that I've brought you to, don't sit back and get all smug and self-conceited and say, ah, you know, we're here because we're better than all those people that we passed along the way. We're so much better than the Amalekites were or the Moabites or all those others that we passed along the way. We're just better. We're righteous. No, you're stiff-necked. Now, pastors don't say that to their congregation because they know it about themselves even better, how stiff-necked we are. But God himself says it to his people. You are stiff-necked. So when others receive judgment, don't get on any high horses and point fingers in their direction as though you don't deserve it yourself because God's enemy is more complex than that. His enemy is not a people. His enemy is not a culture. It's not a country. It's not a social class or an ethnic group or any form of government. His enemy is not a presidential candidate, whether they were elected or not. And so don't get lost in the stuffy air and the dim light of worldly assumptions and self-righteously find pleasure in the idea of judgment. Because the big picture of redemptive history shows us that God's enemy is evil with a capital E. All of it, in all of its complexity, all evil born out of the rebellion of Satan himself, fostered in the effects of a fallen creation and harbored in the souls and hearts of men and women, including you and me. And so with the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, as we heard from Ephesians moments ago, the theater of battle has moved to the human heart. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. The enemy is, of course, not just out there somewhere. It's right here. It's right in here in in the depth of my own soul, in the depth of your own soul. And surely as you live with yourself from day to day, you begin to realize how complicated that is and how complex the evil is that's even residing in your own soul. And so Paul exhorts us, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to to stand in the day of evil. I don't know if Paul was thinking back on the day of Esther and, and anticipating that day on which the evil would come and would the Jews be able to stand and defend themselves, but Paul is using imagery that's very similar to tell us that in the means of grace, in word and sacrament and prayer, we have all that we need to fight it. We don't need any swords. We need God's means of grace. And so take up the the truth and righteousness of the gospel and peace as your security. Put on the faith and salvation of the gospel as your protection And pick up the Word of God and prayer as the weapons that you use in that fight because God's enemy is complex. But in the big picture of His redemptive history, we see also that His mercy is simple. 
When Esther spoke again to the king, she said something that was really quite stunning there in chapter 8 and verse 6, the verses before that. It's stunning, I think, even in a sense that she could not have possibly known at the time. She said, if it please the king, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman. She's doing her business. She's doing what she knows she must do to try to save her people. But then it all comes spilling out of her heart. Verse 6, for how can I bear to see the calamity that's coming to my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? What's she doing? She's identifying with Israel. She's casting her lot, to use Esther's sorts of terms. She's casting her lot with those who are condemned. She's placing herself, frankly, in the path of their destruction. How can I bear to see the calamity that's coming to my people? How can I bear to see the destruction that's coming to my family, to my brothers, to my sisters? God's mercy is as simple as his identifying with his people. Now, bear with me again for a moment and give me a little bit of theological latitude here maybe. One could imagine that in some cosmic sense, way back in Genesis chapter 3, when the fall of man and woman occurred, when the king, God himself, the king of all of creation, decreed that the man and woman would now surely die because of their rebellion against him, one could imagine that at that moment, another one who had the king's ear declared, how can I bear to see the calamity that is now coming to my people throughout the ages? How can I bear to see the destruction of my brothers and my sisters? Now, Esther had no idea how stunning her words were. How could she have possibly known? that they were, in some sense, reflective of the, the intentions of the very Son of God Himself. The Word of all creation, the, the very One, the eternal second person of the Trinity, who took on flesh, why? In order to identify with us. In order to cast His lot with the condemned. In order to place Himself in the path of our destruction. Esther could not have known the significance of her words at the time. You know, it's really hard to tell even if Esther and and Mordecai were even very well aware of their circumstances. You know, the, the book is, again, as we've seen before, careful to not even mention directly the presence of God in the midst of this story. It's hard to tell if Esther and Mordecai were even aware of their circumstances. It's hard to tell if maybe they had just even dismissed the faith of their grandparents from back in Jerusalem, back in those old days, as folklore. Esther and Mordecai had never lived in Jerusalem. They'd never set foot in Israel themselves. They knew the stories, but this was grandma and grandpa's faith back in the day, a hundred years ago. Maybe they just set it all aside as folklore. I mean, not once in the book do they even give a nod to acknowledge the Lord. Not even like a a football player scoring a touchdown and 
putting his finger up to the sky as though he has some profound theological thing to say with it. They don't even do that. And yet, through them, God preserves his promise to bring his Redeemer who would cast his lot with us, who would put himself in the path of our destruction, who would identify himself with you and me. Simply and simple mercy for all who believe. Now, if, if that good news is true, and it is, then there are many things that should follow in terms of application for us to think about. I want to mention a couple of them for our consideration. If that good news is true, then we should grow in sympathy for our brothers and our sisters. Sympathy. If not empathy, experiencing what they experience, then at least sympathy for our brothers and our sisters. John mentioned a while ago the the post-election trauma that many people have felt in these past few days. There have been all kinds of reactions to it, certainly. I guess there always are, maybe this year more so than most. A Christian magazine, I don't know if it was Christianity Today or, or some similar magazine, did a sampling of church leaders this past week after the election to get their reactions to the results of it. Church leaders, believers, leaders in the church. And some of them were, quote, relieved. Because, uh, you know, they imagined a a much worse outcome to the election than they had had thought. And and I guess they assumed that the the outcome that we have is maybe going to be better for the way that they see the world. And so they were relieved. Others actually felt betrayed. Now, these are Christian leaders in, in the in the in the Bible-believing church. Others felt betrayed. And all of them have their reasons. All of them have legitimate and significant and deep reasons for their reactions to it. But they all also had their blind spots, as we all always do. And what if both of them said, how can I bear to see the calamity, the destruction, the distress that has come to my brothers and my sisters. You know, maybe it is that those who feel relieved by the results are, are maybe just a little bit too comfortable with civil authority being a safe haven for them. And, and maybe they need some proper gospel perspective, which their brothers and sisters in other positions might be able to show them. And maybe it is that those who feel betrayed with real sense of distress and fear and concern, maybe not just for themselves but for others, maybe they are blind now to the power of God to use even clumsy, disinterested, boorish, immoral kings to bring about His purpose. Maybe. If the good news of God's simple mercy is true, then our sympathy for one another, for our brothers and sisters, should grow. But there's something else here, too. Our faith in God's redemptive plan should grow as well. Karen Jobes is this commentator, this expert on Esther that I mentioned before. She puts it this way. She says, Our modern faith in God's promise rests on the texts of a Bible 
that grow more ancient with each passing generation. Do you ever think about that way? With each passing generation, the, the text of Scripture is older and older and older. It's, it's folklore in the past, right? I mean, that's, that's often the way that new generations see and assume as they think about Scripture. And so some doubt that in the absence of remarkable and miraculous deeds that God could really be at work. And yet, what does Scripture tell us? It tells us that all of human history is actually a part of God's redemptive plan. Again, the big picture. All of human history, ours no less than Esther's, is a part of God's redemptive plan. And so we cannot at any moment know the significance of world events or even the ordinary events of our own lives. But what we can know is this. God is at work. And He's at work through a counter-decree. You see, when God created the universe ages ago, He did so perfectly. On His own observation, it was very good. You know those words from Genesis. The sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, and all of life on this earth, including his very image placed in the man and the woman. They were so very good. They were perfect. All of it, it was so good that God established an irrevocable decree that for any who would turn away from his truth, there would be only death. And we turned away. In our heart of hearts, we know it. We, we know that the world is not what it's supposed to be. We you don't have to be a Christian to know that we, we've turned away from the beauty and perfection and truth of God's creation. And so there is a day yet to come when judgment will arrive. But in the big picture of God's redemptive plan, there is also a counter decree that all who believe in His Son should not perish, but have everlasting life. You know, back in that, that Hobbit picture Bilbo climbing the tree when, when he reached the top of that tree and he thrust his head out through the leaves and in, into the the fresh air and the clear view of the big picture that all hit him in the face but it also made him aware of an approaching evil and the threat that it would inevitably bring to his life and that of his friends don't get thrown off by the details in God's redemptive plan, He takes His enemy very, very seriously. But for His people, His simple mercy prevails. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Oh Lord our God, we give You thanks for Your good news in Jesus and in the book of Esther. And we pray that You would give us faith to believe this. That You would give us faith to understand the complexity of the enemy that we face along with you, and yet the simplicity of your mercy to us in Jesus. Grant that we might believe these things and have hope in you alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.